The Psychedologist. You're listening to Consciousness Positive Radio. This episode is with Galia Tanai. Galia is someone I met when I posted a Carl Jung quote on Facebook, and we were friends, but I have never met her, and I'm not sure actually how we came to be friends, but so glad that we did, because she commented with a link to um, how Carl Jung was a practitioner way outside of integrity, and I will share that link in the show notes, but it was a great start to our relationship. I love learning um, the shadow, I'll say, histories of um, some of our more famous and revered figures uh, and holding them in a little bit more complexity through knowing their shitty behavior. So, Dr. Galia Tanai is a practitioner of the ancient ways and teacher on the path of freedom. She spent many years in deep traditional Buddhist practice and had been teaching intensive meditation retreats for the last eight years. Galia is a certified yoga teacher who teaches yoga therapy and emphasizes the embodiment in awareness practice. Galia has a PhD in psychology and for many years had worked with patients as well as taught and trained therapists in academic and non-academic programs. For 13 years, Galia has been working with psychedelics, mainly psilocybin mushrooms and ayahuasca, traveling through these altered states and accompanying others on this plan uh, path. <laughs> you rarely can plan it. Um, Galia is a vocal artist, a musician, and a writer who believes that freedom is a form of art and creativity is necessary in our coming home to our being. This is truly an amazing person. I think that you'll find a lot in this episode for you um, intellectually and somatically. It's really beautiful topics. Um, some things that we talk about are um, she shares from her life's journey from imagination and exploring the mind as a child to struggles with depression in adolescence, finding meditation, going the route of higher education in psychology, and all of the wisdom that she gained along the way. We talk about the mental health system and the medical model and how it is a narrow concept of what is acceptable. Talk about realizing that being a part of the system without any call for radical change did not feel ethical for Galia. Um, she talks about founding a program for mindfulness-based therapies for practitioners, creating a network of therapists grounded in systemic perspectives on human suffering. We talk about the growing demand for alternatives to the medical and psychiatric models, and that we can all help to develop those models. In fact, we must help. The war on consciousness, the war on weirdness comes up, the need for communities in our society with cognitive and sexual freedom, the danger of commodifying and marketing psychedelics, the complex phenomena of depression. So I told you it's a really juicy episode. Uh, dismantling the cage by creating an environment with space for community, sharing, and pleasure. We talk about an excellent book that she recommended to me, and I'll recommend it to you, Sacred Pleasure by Ryan Eisler, and about moving away from authority toward dialogue and boundaries and respecting autonomy. We talk about acknowledging and taking responsibility around hierarchies and what a painful process it can be. But ultimately, this gives ourselves the chance to envision and enact alternatives. She says that we can all take steps to live differently, to dismantle hierarchies in wider and wider circles, and that therapeutic processes are processes of building an alternative life and restoring the ability to listen to one's internal compass. Finally, she leaves us with a consciousness hack well, I'll let you discover it if you get to the end of the episode, and I hope you do. Thanks for listening. Hi, Galia. Thank you for coming on the show. Hi, Leah. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. This will be a juicy one. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so tell the listeners, what was your relationship to consciousness as a child? So as a child, I remember passing so many hours um, within the world of my own imagination, creating all these stories and, you know, fantasies and like having long hours of playing with myself, being different characters. 
And I think this ability to construct entire universes within our consciousness and travel and experience these different emotions and sensations, I feel that I really had the privilege and kind of the freedom and the safety as a child to to really enjoy this potential fully, you know, as a child in a world where I was much less exposed to screens or television. I was living in the countryside, so I spent lots of time in nature. Um, so I think these are like my first uh, memories of spending time within, within myself, within my own worlds or within the worlds that my mind has constructed. But... I think that really early on, I started to explore and I was very curious about what's, what's there, what's inside there. So I think the, the, like the thing or the quality that I would say that kind of characterize the most, my first encounters with, with this sphere of consciousness was really curiosity and like a, a great desire to discover, you know, like this world discovers discoverers that you know wander around looking for this unknown so i think this this is more what i can come up with naturally this this sensation is very accessible to me and still is by the way <laughs> mm. i really relate to that in my own childhood not in the countryside necessarily but i did grow up on the river um beside a forest and yeah i just remember having so many adventures with just within my own imagination, walking yeah. through the trees, looking at the plants and imagining myself as this or that person or creature or something. Right. Right. Or characters from books that I really loved. And I was having this whole entire lives, you know, of this character, as, you know, by me. And yeah. These are, these yeah. are the abilities or the potentials that are within, within our minds. They're always there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Any books in particular that resonated with you? I was like in the um, King of the, how do you call it? Like the King of the Ring, the Lord of the Rings. Um, oh, yeah. This was my trilogy as a, as a young, uh, young child. But also a lot of other books, you know, a lot of fantasy books. I was a, I was a geek. I was a nerd as a child. So I really loved books. I used to read a lot of books and it influenced me a lot completely. You're not a nerd anymore? Yeah, of course I am. <laughs> a proud <laughs> geek. <laughs> oh, and then, so as you got older, what, what did you end up doing in, in adolescence, in school beyond that? Um, you, know, you mean with relation to consciousness or in general? Um, in relation to consciousness, I think, but in, in general to anything that's relevant. I think that I spend a lot of time doing artistic or creative stuff all, all of my life. Ever since I was a child, I remember myself, you know, preparing these performances for my family and making everybody sit down and watch me for like an hour when I'm doing my whatever, dancing, singing, whatever. I was always very much into into basically all forms of art. So I, I really love to, to dance and to sing and to write. I used to write poetry as a child. And um, yeah, I was really, really, and I even painted, which is something that today I really don't anymore have the access to in a way. But as a child, I just really felt like really inclined to do all types of artistic activities, really. And um, so I spent a lot as a as as an adolescent, <clears throat> which was already a, let's say a tougher time in my life because I started to suffer from a lot of mental mental problems or like uh, you know this difficult emotional state. But still, I was uh, very active as a like I was a musician. I played the saxophone and I was singing. I was in the jazz kind of, uh, in, in high school, I was in the jazz uh, department, let's say. Um, mm -hmm. So I was doing really a lot of different artistic things. This was always kind of, as, a, as an adolescent, I always imagined myself being a, a choreographer, a dancer, a musician, you know, this multidisciplinary artist, <laughs> basically. Mm. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> 
And then when did altered states of consciousness become part of your life? So this is an interesting question. I was thinking a lot about this um, in different ways because actually they, they were always there in this or that other way, you know, uh, as, as I said, you know, all mm-hmm. these forms of art and let's say singing together, playing together, playing music together, playing jazz together are all kinds of activities that really demands you to kind of, you know, tune in and really listen deeply. And I was always surrounded also but even as an adolescent who are very interested and very curious about altered states. Um, but me personally, until I was uh, 19, I didn't start actually exploring this uh, state, not directly, not through, not through formal meditation, and which was my first gate to altered state. And even not through drugs, though, or substances, because many of the people that were around me were smoking weed or doing other forms of, of, of you know, exploration, mind-altering explorations. But I felt a lot of fear as an adolescent, and I, I didn't, I didn't reach out, even though maybe <laughs> looking back, maybe it could have helped me. <laughs> no, but I'm joking. But the first encounter with uh, a more formal practice of altered states began when I was 19 <clears throat> or 20. I was uh, after my military service in the army, in the Israeli occupation army. And fortunately, that's a part of my biography I would like to delete, but it's there anyways, nonetheless. Um, so I went to, to India and I started, uh, I had a very, very, very powerful encounter with the Buddhist practice. And for the few next years, I was dedicating myself fully to the Buddhist practice. So I started practicing, um, in the Burmese tradition. Uh, in the Theravada tradition, the early Buddhist tradition. And I spent long periods of time uh, in the, in, in, mostly in Nepal, in one center, in one meditation center, where I was doing long-term retreats of several months and so on. And this was the real first encounter that I had with, with altered states, which were born out of, of meditation. Wow. <clears throat> Did you have a sense of where you wanted it to bring you or, or what the function was for you or were you guided or is it sort of like, um, I'll do this and then figure it out later. So I got into this practice, uh, out of a mix of, as I said before, tremendous curiosity with regard to what's, what's in there or what is there in life, but also with a very urgent need to relieve a very deep suffering that I was having as an adolescent. I have suffered as an adolescent from several depressive uh, episodes, major depressive episodes, in which I really, you know, for several months each time, I really, really suffered immensely. Like I I can really understand now today when I'm as a therapist, as a supervisor and a teacher, always I'm talking to people about depression and I said, it's a kind of a, a continent that whoever never visited, it's it's very hard to understand the experience. It's something qualitatively very different from other state. If, if we're talking about altered state, depression is a kind of an altered state of consciousness, right? It's mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. out of the ordinary states that we know. So I was also kind of pushed to towards Buddhism because as an adolescent, I have a very pressing need to find something to relieve my suffering. And when I did find this way, in my initial encounter with this way, I had a, such a tremendous sense of relief and of coming back home to something that makes sense for me, that is logical for me, that I can follow. And so I really had this, you know... Um, a major turning point in my life in which I kind of adopted this, not only the practice, but also the philosophy. And I really made it into my, my identity because I really needed a path. I needed a path, a direct, a clear, a structured path out of my personal suffering. So I think this was the 
kind of first inclination that took me so deep into that Buddhist uh, Buddhist swirl. <laughs> Let's call it like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and so I imagine that that philosophical and um, that, that foundation of practice and belief informed you to go into psychology at some point? Yeah. So after a few years of intensive practice, I was reaching this point at about the age of 23 of having this dilemma. If I want to kind of take, take it step further, go be a nun, you know, in Burma, this was like the option or should I come back to the West and integrate and find a way to bring it back kind of home into my roots or whatever. And also, as the story always goes, I met a guy and I fell in love with him. And, uh, you know, so there were like a lot of forces that was were pulling me back somehow into the more Western way of living. And then I, I decided that <clears throat> I, I wanted to go and pursue the academic path in order to, and this was, it, it's funny because my initial, let's say, motivation was to find a way to bring this healing for depression that I had and I had experienced through the practice of Buddhism to bring it into our society, to find a way to bring the personal experience of transformation that I had and to translate it because it it seemed so universal to me at that point. It seemed like something that I can just translate into principles that people can understand and then, you know, I can help others. So this was a lot of my kind of initial motivation. But then I got into into academy and things, you know. (laughs) I started to mm. face the complexity of this world, let's say. Mm. Yeah. I relate a lot to your story, but I didn't end up on my meditation journey until after. Um, but I really wanted to help other people and to help bring them to peace. And, and then psychology sort of beat it out of me in a way with, um, just like, okay, this is the way that you have to look at it. Very pathologizing, no systemic critique. Um, was that something that you came up with? Yeah, it it took me, I think it took me longer than you (laughs) to, to realize, um, it was a really long process because I started out, you know, and I did a lot of time, um, of course, doing my studies, doing a lot of volunteering work in psychiatric hospitals, and then going more into the professional kind of uh, uh, graduate training and so on, and my PhD. And, and so throughout this way, I kept kind of looking for my place in the picture because the more I... I the more I had this intimate encounter with the system of mental health and especially with medical model and the psychiatric uh, institution, the more I realized that I deeply, I don't resonate with the way things uh, are being done in these circumstances, you know, and that it's not only the theory and the practice, but it's also, again, it's the, institutions that had taken form you know this totalitarian uh, way of thinking about the human being again just like you said in terms of uh, pathologizing suffering and then you know putting a very very narrow concept of what is acceptable and how can we inter interpret different experiences and so on but it really was a gradual process because I was All all the time I kept looking for, and I, by the way, I found a lot of really valuable, amazing, beautiful things, you know, in terms of attachment theory and mindfulness-based therapy and a lot of amazing conceptual and practical things that are being done in this field. But step by step, I realized that I can be doing all of these things, but not as part of the system because... For me, being a part of the system without any critical examination of it, without 
a radical call for change in it um, seemed less and less of an ethical, let's say, thing to do at that point. But it really was a gradual mm-hmm. process. It's not like it happened in one day. Every time, in every, in every point in, in my encounter with this system, I suddenly had another <clears throat> angle of perspective that made me realize how much, how far I am in my, uh, you know, in the way I perceive what a human being is, in the way I perceive what human suffering is, you know, from the people who are teaching me, from the people who are supervising me. And again, not for, not, not from all of them. I had amazing, I had, you know, the privilege again to meet amazing teachers along my way, people who are really, deeply rooted in, in therapeutical ethics and bring about a lot of a lot of amazing new things into this field of psychology. But yeah, fundamentally after after I finished my PhD, after I completed my, my research and published and so on, I realized that this is not, for me, this is not the way to create the alternative I want to see in the world for people who are suffering. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then the story gets more complicated. No, but um, at that point, I I left, um, I, I graduated, and then I started creating or participating in creating alternatives. So <clears throat> I was living in Israel at this time, and we had we, we my colleagues founded a, a three year program for mindfulness based therapies to train professionals who are already working with clients in this new kind of language, in this new kind of concepts and approaches which are dialogue-based, which are non-pathologizing, non, non, not diagnostically based and so on. And also I did a lot of work with different uh, professionals in hospitals through NGOs, supervising therapists, and just really creating uh, a whole community, a whole network of, of therapists who just speak another language, who looks at that. And again, it has a lot of connection with, with social workers and with systemic um, perspectives on human suffering, um, you know, different kind of approaches, which really sees how the individual suffering is really, really connected and stemming out of the so, so society and the constructions that society are building around us all the time. And so this was really a lot of my work in the past, let's say seven years since I, or six years since I, yeah, since I completed my PhD. Mm. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, so glad to meet people that are, are doing that work. And I think that once someone is exposed to it, it's hard not to, to move toward that different perspective. And I, one main reason I don't pursue licensure and become a therapist myself is so many therapists have expressed, um, dismay and, uh, sort of doom at feeling like the sort of help that their clients need, they can't really give to them. And it's much more complicated than what just simply we can accomplish for 45 minutes in a room or now, you know, for 45 minutes on, zoom or whatever yeah of course yeah i think, I think yeah sorry yeah go on go on well, i was going to ask you to talk about the war on consciousness and the intentions and functions of altered states something we talked about last but why don't you say what you're going to say first no i said about the inclination that the beautiful thing is that when these alternatives are being posed to the clans themselves we really see an immediate response within the clients, within the field, you know, of demand, of growing demand to have alternatives to the medical and psychiatrical model. Once we are establishing things like clubhouse models, if you are familiar with it, once we have services that are based on open dialogue and on third wave behavior therapies and so on, we really see that clients are starting to ask for that and want that and prefer that. And this is, and of course, we also see empirically that <clears throat> in terms of recovery, the data is better. So 
I think this is something that is really encouraging for me. And I think it's really evident that when the service is better, when it's really meeting better the needs of the person, the person is going to want it and ask for it loudly, you know. And when we are posing it in front or as a, an alternative for hospitalization in a psychiatric ward, most of the people will usually prefer that. And so I feel that really creating the alternative, not just focusing on, you know, criticizing just fully, completely, yeah, what is going on at the psychiatric institution, but also actively working in um, establishing functioning alternatives with professionals who have the skills, who have the, you know, who have the, the experience, but are willing to try out these new models. Once we are offering them to the, to the field, to the patients, to the families of the patients, usually we will see a great inclination and a lot of demands to have these alternatives. And this is very encouraging for me, you know, because then it means that that this change is organic and it can happen. It's inevitable in a way, you know? Right, right. And it can happen from from all different directions too, like starting within the individual and then that carries out to the people in their exactly. life as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, so about the war and consciousness, <laughs> my favorite topic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, wow, this is such a this is such a broad thing, you know, and I think right now we really can see we can see it in the making as we are witnessing this horrible situation due to the pandemic and everything that is going around in the world right now. And we can see how our society has, you know, caged us or surrounded us with this devices of influence of behavior modification of surveillance you know that are completely kind of sur surrounding us and enveloping us in a way and the way that they are influencing the way that they are designing our experience the way they try to manipulate all of these different forces really i think we can really look at it and, and see how non-human friendly as it had become you know if we're looking from this from this viewpoint and we ask ourselves okay as a human being you know with all this wide range of exp of inner experiences if we started from the childhood you know with all this potential infinite space of of creativity of different types of pleasure and pain and so on, how much we've been reduced, how much we've been, you know, locked in, enslaved, abducted by such a narrow and, you know, repetitive and mon monotonous, you know, form of repetition that is surrounding us in such a way that it's really hard for us, for most of us, it's really, really hard to stop this trance for even just 10 minutes a day and to sit quietly with ourselves. For me, this is insane, really. The idea that for most people, spending 10 minutes quietly, alone with themselves, the idea that that activity is perceived as something so frightening, difficult, impossible, this is for me the fruit or the, the result of the war on consciousness. Mm. Mm. This is the result of a process that habituated us so badly into being con consumers, steadily consuming content, again, harmful for us that, you know, induce a lot of negative mental, mental states. And in, again, in ways through mediums that are not designed for our well-being, for our exploration, for our freedom, they are designed to limit, to to narrow, again, to narrow our experience and to all the time sell us this idea that we have to keep on looking and behaving exactly like this. Otherwise, there is the horrible threat, the frightening, horrible threat that we might be weird. 
<laughs> you know? And for me, this is this is really a tragedy, a human tragedy in the making. Because let's let's look at now, you know, with the, the pandemic and everything. Everybody's so afraid and scared, you know. Everybody's shaking in this or that way. But there are so little spaces. There are so there is so little room for us to shake together, you know, to express mm-hmm. these emotions, to to dance these emotions, to sing these emotions, to you know. To, to do what human beings have been doing ever since, you know, the dawn of history or the, even before history, which is even better, you know, which is to <laughs> go in and out of different states, of different mind states, of different body states, and go freely and travel freely and travel within, again, with, with guidance or with help or with structure that allows a space for this kind of experiences and weave them into our society. In our society, it does not exist. There is no room for that, nowhere. This is what I this is why this is why I feel that's that's a war. Mm-hmm. And why medications that dull and numb and disconnect us from the somatic experience of the moment are prescribed and legal and culturally acceptable and alcohol, you know, and, and, and advertised. Whereas psychedelics, for example, that might bring someone closer to this truth or bring them into the moment, give, give access to, I mean, at least speaking for myself, I didn't feel the stillness that I could have within myself until I journeyed with psychedelics as an adult. And, and for that to be not just illegal, but criminalized, like people spending time in jail for, for producing that and distributing it or growing it, something that, that was even stolen to begin with, um, from Maria Sabina in Mexico. I mean, that's part of the war on consciousness too. Right. Completely, completely. Even though, uh, you know, I have my, my reserves because the, the, for me, after a long, long time watching this, I can say that every substance can be used in a way which is um or, or yeah almost every substance can be used in a way which is um kind of um supporting supporting this narrowing down and i know it sounds strange but i really do feel that way and especially after i'm starting to see what's going on now with with psychedelics and the way it's incorporated into the medical model, you know, because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because everything, every, every substance in the world can be used in a way which is of promoting avoidance, which is promoting mm-hmm. the hap- what we call in the acceptance commitment uh, a framework, what we call the happiness trap. The idea that, you know, we are supposed to look fine, to look good, and that we are the kind of happiness we're looking for is this, very, very um, momentarily relief from from this gross suffering. Well, well, actually, the 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 challenge is is, and if we speak about the war on consciousness, the challenge for me is much much wider than that because allowing for spaces in our society, you know, allowing for communities in our society in which we can really have freedom cognitive freedom you know in which we can have sexual freedom in which we can have this kind of freedom that i speak about which is the the freedom to 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 be weird right and and i i i know that psychedelically psychedelics traditionally were were correlated with that and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it was a counter counter counterculture movement, you know, and it with it drew people that already were interested in challenging the social boundaries. But I think what we're going to see is that once it's being commercialized, once it's being um, commodified. And once it's being marketed within the framework of surveillance capitalism, we are just going to see it functioning 
in the in the same way which is go back to okay you you were depressed okay go back to your line you know and not necessarily function as a as a catalyst as 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 a, as a something that pushes society towards more real intimacy and real freedom this is kind of my concerns you know because i i truly believe that for some people psychiatric medications are the best thing that they can have right are the best thing different kind of psychiatric medication for example if you are suffering from bipolar disorder then for sure if you'll be getting good psychiatric medication it will it, you know m- m- most probably it will help you live your life in a most in, in a more meaningful way and really help you to to kind of realize yourself it, it may really help you to be stable enough to realize what is important for you you know so i really think it's not we shouldn't fall directly into this trap of putting it on the substance like if we will take this substance we can be more free of course there are substances that are more promising in this domain but i really think we should separate these questions because i think that changing your consciousness through any substance you choose is just a natural human right and the attack on that right it doesn't matter if it's heroin or if it's psilocybin mushroom, it, it, the fact that you want as an adult to alter your consciousness should not be something that is governed by regime under which you are living. You know, I think, I really believe that. The con- cognitive liberty is a, is a human right, is a really basic human right. And I, I mean, now I live in a, in, a, in a country that allows for that. You know, personal use in Spain of substances, personal use is not is not illegal. And I think that's kind of agenda is also showing so much better results when we are talking about even dealing with the problems that substances are are causing, of course, because people use substances for a certain kind of need that they have many times. And just forbidding that will not help. You have to identify the need and understand. What is the systemic you know response that needs to be needs to be given? And um, so I think that if we separate these two questions and we kind of agree that regardless of the substance, altering your mind is a natural human born human right, then we can start to discuss on on the really interesting and important topic of the, you know does psychedelics have a chance? And what, how, in, and under what circumstances can psychedelics have a chance to, to kind of promote or kind of uh, alleviate or kind of let us out of this, you know, cage that the war and consciousness had put us in? And that's a question. I, th- I really think it's a question, and I think it's a very important question at that point when the psychedelic, so quote unquote, renaissance is being, you know, really pushed to the to the front and and so we need to raise all this question and ask okay what how do we integrate psychedelics into our society in a way which really you know allows us for or again uh, support us in this uh auto emancipation let's call it like that <laughs> <laughs> right for for more like embodied and holistic change as opposed to just a tool that could even perpetuate um something that's that's an, that's a dysfunction like i think that you were mentioning when we talked before about how the integration of psychedelic therapy can foster dangerous ideas like about right. um just a biological basis for depression right. yeah this this is very evident with the first uh Uh, movement that has been done which is not psychedelic but it's the the therapy through ketamine that does show promising results in alleviating short short term for the short term the 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 symptoms of depression but in many cases it's just again a transitory effect and it passes away and when we are looking at it again from a broader perspective and we're asking okay does this form of therapy helps the, the the person in any way 
you know, escape this really horrible ideas that are dominating his mind on failure and success, on the image that he has, on who, who is he if he's not one, two, or three, you know, if he doesn't have, uh, you know, whatever job or children, or if he didn't fulfill his whatever goals that he had. So if all this therapy is doing is alleviate this suffering very, very temporarily while kind of making the person believe more and more that all of his problem is just that he has a brain disease. I think personally, this is not a way to go with a depressed patient because depression is such a complex phenomenon that involves the behavior of the person, the relationships of the person. And if we don't use the altered states, and this is exactly what I was referring to, you know, before, if we are not using the altered states as a window for the practice that the person is doing in his life to change. So if we are not saying to him, okay, yeah, we're going to give you this amazing substance that will make you feel good for some time, for not so long, but during this time that you will feel good, we can really try to practice something new. We can really try to practice something, but you know, this something, this new something that I'm offering the person to practice is really not that socially acceptable or it's, it demands a little bit of a, you know, of a shift in our consciousness. It demands us to accept our imperfections, to face death directly, you know, to think about things that we usually don't want to think about and to be brave and to be weird and to, to you know, to go towards instead of try to avoid the pain. So, and of course, psychedelics can help tremendously. And in many cases, psychedelics can help in ways that are beyond language, beyond my ability to explain, or, you know, there, in many cases, there are miraculous teachers. I don't, I do not speak about ketamine because I'm less familiar with this kind of experiences under ketamine, but I, I do know from, you know, so many people that I've worked with about this uh, beautiful, beautiful, transformative, deep, profound experiences, but if it does not come with a broader sense of, again, the social, systemic, uh, interpersonal change that the person needs to make in his life, in his practice, in his daily practice, in the way he speaks to himself, then the dangers are there. The dangers of, again, consuming it as an experience, looking at this through this lens of, Again, what did I gain or how much did I improve, you know? And this, this, these dangers, there is no substance that, you know, can go beyond them alone. <laughs> and for this, we need to be, I feel that we need to be very aware. We need to be very aware of that, especially if we choose to work in these domains of psychedelic medicines, we, we have to ask, okay, what kind of environments are we are we are designing, we are allowing? Is there a space in the in this environment that I'm creating? Is there a real space for sharing in a group? You know, is there a sense of community? Is there a space uh, is there a space for to dance? You know, is there a space to 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 cry to shout so these are questions that i'm very concerned with right now when looking at psychedelic therapy and also in trying to design and and create alternatives which is as i said before the thing i find most important because when we try to offer something that will include all these aspects so We'll include the part of community healing, of, of, you know, sharing or allowing spaces which really brings about something new, brings about a new sense of being together. This is for me, like from my perspective, from the way I see right now, this is the way I feel that we can start to um, dismantle 
dismantle this cage of the war and consciousness because it has to do with with groups it has to do with networks it has to do with communities of people that are allowing each other in a safe and and a very conscious consensual space to explore the this freedom of having altered states around you know yeah and I think children help can help be teachers to us in that you know if we stop trying to um teach them to leave that behind and to, you know, act right and whatever, then, then it's like they're on the same path as we are. But if we actually look to them to, you know, in the way that they express and are weird um, and honor that it's, there's so much of a better chance for everybody. You know, this is really interesting. Uh, I've talked to you also about this book I was really influenced by, which is called Sacred Pleasure, but by Ryan Eisler which I highly recommend. I actually, I almost finished reading it. I, I recommend it too. It's so good. It's so yeah, good. let's talk about that a little okay, bit. Okay, because it really, it's really correlates to your question, you know, because as a mother, you know, I have a almost six-year-old son right now. And I really see this process. I really, I really have the, 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 the opportunity to view this processes in the making. And it's really fascinating to see that because when we are uh, living in this constructed society of authoritarian manners of, you know, I'm telling you what you need to think, how you need to look like, what you need to, to wear, if you're too fat or you're too skinny or you're too tall or you do this, when we are living, we are living in this environment since we are children. And the most, like the, the most powerful impact on us actually is being made, I think, you know, until the age of let's say 12 you know when we really absorb this kind of messages the messages of the war on consciousness the messages on the war on pleasure the war the war on on the feminine on the feminine you know and <clears throat> as a mother i really i'm i'm really witnessing this miracle and it's really not easy because it demands a lot of other kind of you know, responses and so on. It, and it demands for me all the time to be very aware of my um, automatic patterns, you know. But when I when I have this chance to see how it's going on when, when I'm not doing this authoritarian thing, when I'm not trying to tell my child how he's supposed to look like, what he's supposed to say, how he's supposed to behave, but I'm really entering into the dialogue with him from a place that respects my own limitation and boundaries and and assertively p puts them but also you know allows a lot of of space for for the child something really different happens and i see it around me a lot and i this is also something that encourages me a lot because i see the children that are growing up like that and their responses to things and the way they you know the way they perceive things so naturally <laughs> You know, so easily. It's like this this friend that lives um, around around San Francisco has told me a story about his child. They adopted a, a dog, and when he came back from school, uh, they told him, "Yeah, we have this new dog, and she's called La La La." And then he looked at his father and said, "Daddy, how do you know that she, that's a she? How do you know that they don't want?" that she don't want to be addressed as they. <laughs> <laughs> so, and when it's coming out of a, of a, of a mouth of a six-year-old, it seems so natural to you, you know, and only when you get it through this, and it's the same with, with altered states, you know, because when children are growing up in a situation or in a society, in a community where people are going to ceremonies and the children can be around and there, you know, there is a free discussion of these different states and or they're coming for a trans festival, for example, and they see all these people dancing, going crazy, but they're doing it in a very safe environment with their parents, you know, with them all the time. You see the way that they're incorporating and really, you know, this kind of this human potential is kind of being spread in front of them and they can absorb it and allow themselves this this different potentials 
And this is something really, really beautiful. When I see children in these environments, of course, my own son, but also his friends and, you know, the, the, the sons and daughters of my, my close friends, I, I get so encouraged by that. Really, this is something really that you can really see how you can, you can stop years, thousands of years, you know, of social conditioning and create something, something, you know, more free for your, for your child. This is really, this is really encouraging. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And could you speak more about, I mean, this might be more in the chalice and the blade. I'm not sure, but um, could you speak about hierarchies and the importance of recognizing hierarchies? Not that they're inherently bad, but that there's certain awareness we have to have about them. Of course. Yeah. I think right now it's a really pressing issue because we are, you know, we are seeing these waves of, I would say uprising, a very beautiful uprising in many places in the States, of course, of people saying, hey, look, you know, just acknowledge the situation, just acknowledge the situation and and take responsibility for that. And I think this is a really important point when we are talking about this, you know, authoritarian structures and hierarchies of whether it's hierarchies of race, or as in the country I came from, hierarchies of ethnicity, of religion, and so on. As long as we are, as we are, you know, we, we, we deny, as long as we refuse to acknowledge, we have no chance of getting anywhere but into more and more violence and more and more war. And of course, that in the beginning, when we start to acknowledge these hierarchies, it's a very painful process. You know, I've left Israel partially because, or mostly because as a, as an activist, as a political activist, I couldn't live there anymore. I couldn't anymore participate in any way with, with what this regime is, the Zionist regime is, is been doing in, in this country. So of course there is a lot of pain that is surfacing when you are starting to, to acknowledge it's the same when we start to open our eyes to patriarchy, you know? Many times people in the beginning, they say, oh, I, I wish I wouldn't see. I wish I wouldn't look. I wish I wouldn't know that. It's just too much pain. And what, what can I do? You know, I'm, I'm, I feel so, you know, helpless. I cannot do anything. But I think that's only a very initial stage, an initial phase, because if you do, if you you are willing, and that's a, the beautiful thing about acceptance, that's the beautiful thing about facing what really is, if we're landing Krishnamurti's, uh, you know, instructions, then slowly we start to recognize also the alternative. <laughs> And until we mm-hmm. don't recognize what really is, until we don't acknowledge the hierarchies that are um, caging us, the hierarchies that are bounding us, we have no chance of even envisioning an alternative. We don't know that we are caged. We think that we are fine. We think that we are happy with that. We think that it's okay that I'm oppressing this person. It's okay that I'm oppressing this other ethnicity. It's okay that I'm oppressed. I don't need to think about that. But then you're actually just you know, you're left with this cir- circle of oppression because the same forces are being, you know, used against you. And when you start to open your eyes, as much pain as it brings along, comes with it this, you know, option of envisioning an alternative for yourself. And this is really, for me, this is the essential point. For two years now, since I left Israel, I live a very different, uh, let's say, form of life. For an entire year, I've been traveling with my partner in a caravan throughout Spain and Europe. And ever since we stopped in one place, we have, you know, our own little farm or little garden with, with our own vegetables. And we are doing a lot of permacultures and so on. And I think it's really like, Understanding that envisioning an alternative 
really committing yourself, committing yourself deeply to create something different, even within your own little temporary autonomous zone, even within your own little community, within your village, within your friends, you know, doing these steps to create spaces which pose an alternative, which are spaces, again, that work to dismantle these hierarchies. Um, and of course, once you have the opportunity, as I was doing in the country I was living in most of my life, start to do this work in wider circles in the society you are living in, whether it's with people in this kind of a need or in that kind of need, but not just keeping it within your own bubble, but finding the way to bridge that and to translate that and to kind of show show this alternative to, to others as well. Mm. And would you say that that is something that you try to incorporate in your therapy? What? This, the idea of building an alternative? I suppose, yeah. I'm just thinking about bridging the two... You know, we talked about kind of like coming to recognize in in cases of like what the mainstream medical model might call depression. Yeah, coming to recognize how how um, intricate it is, and that it's not just biologically based. Um, and it seems similar to recognizing that the hierarchies aren't the way that it has to be done, and just because it's all that I might see when I look around me, um, that I can live differently, and that that can can spread out and out and out right many times i find i found myself saying to my depressed patient uh, the sentence that you know if i had to live your life day day after day i would be depressed too <laughs> you mm-hmm. know and i i think this kind of validation is really important and i don't speak about cases in which of course the person has no choice i don't speak about people who are you know oppressed uh, financially or social economically and you know from from this kind of of statuses in which the diff- we need to do different pow- uh, work of empowerment you know in which i really believe that the work on um network on community uh, is much more important than than only the individual therapy which is also extremely important of course yeah but you cannot separate mm-hmm. the two but when when I talk about building an alternative, every 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 therapeutical process is a process of building an alternative life. You know, even if it just means that you will stop hating yourself every morning when you're looking at the mirror, then you need to envision an alternative to the life that you are living right now, in which you are doing that, and you think that that's the only way because this is reality because you're not beautiful like the model that is in the social network that you're currently looking at, you know? So I see this as really basically the challenge of every therapeutical process is to first recognize the authoritarian hierarchical systems that oppressed you and pushed you and that you also internalized their voices or whether it was you're in your family or in your school whether it was your peers, your friends, again, the media that you are exposed to, you need to wake up, you know? You need to uh, awaken and to look at these different forces that, you know, worked on you and that did that to you. And then slowly, slowly, you need to decenter, you need to separate from them, you need to not identify with what they're saying anymore, with their messages, with their, you know, hypothesis on what life is or how do we need to live life. And then starts a very, very challenging process that takes a lot of courage, which is, you know, restoring the ability to listen to your inner compass, restoring the ability to, to envision the alternative that you want to live in. And that's really... You know, that's a real journey. This is why I love therapy so much, because when it works, it's so beautiful. Sometimes the person doesn't need to do almost anything external. 
you know, and it just needs to change the patterns, the inner patterns that works. But many, many, many times, I would say most of the times, yes, of course, there are external changes that needs to take place as well in what you eat, in what you buy, in what you, in the people that you hang out with, in your in your partnership, in your the way you are in the relationship with your your children or your parents, and this all is working, you know, as a big integrated system. <clears throat> yeah, that that really resonates for me. It reminds me of um, when I was first sort of exposed to this perspective. Well, one was through my partner kind of exposing me to it. And then he bought me this book called The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. Have you heard no, of No, never. But she talks about the body shame profit complex. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, it's just all about looking around and recognizing what messages we've internalized and, and taken on as truths rather than like someone else's agenda to exactly. have power over us in some way or take our money. Exactly. And this comes or into, get, us, into the, get us to give our money. Right. And the horrible thing is that this comes into the most intimate parts and, and you know, sacred parts of our life. It comes into our sexuality. It comes into our most intimate relationships. We are constantly comparing and we have images in our head constantly working. You know, we're constantly working to compare ourselves uh, to this image, to this picture that we have in our head of whatever the, the sex that we want to be, the relationship that we want to have. And it's all become, you know, through this, uh, this mechanism of image or the tyranny of the image, we really lose contact with, with this field of experience and with the richness also and the diversity that there is within our inner field of experience. And when we tune back into it, when we really are willing to listen, we, found, we find things that are, you know, not necessarily comfortable or easy in terms of the social reaction to it, but to that we need to have the courage. And again, we need to have the support and we need to have the community to that allows us. And for this, I'm, I'm really, really, some, this is something that I find a little bit sad in this, um, you know, in this constant wish of the psychedelic community all the time to go mainstream instead of saying, mm -hmm. okay, we don't want to mainstream psychedelics. We want to, we want to, you know, marginalize the society. You know, we want to bring, we want to bring this, this edges. We want to bring this freedom. We want to bring this diversity, this weirdness. We want to bring that into the table, into the dinner table, you know, of the American, all American family. We don't want to bring psychedelics and put them in this form so that they will fit into this dinner table because nobody's happy around this dinner table, you know? We want to, to put on music around this dinner table and ask the people to dance, you know? And this is why I constantly try to find my peers, my colleagues, my comrades, you know, <clears throat> because we are many. In reality, we are many in the psychedelic communities that have this vision, that have this passion, and also that have the resources, the inspiration and everything. So... I'm optimistic in a way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear. And I, I am too. I, I seem to always keep that as part of my outlook. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful for what you shared. And um, in wrapping up, I'd love to know if there's anything else you want to mention. Um, anything else that feels important to include? Um, no, I just want to thank you that you invited me. And of course, uh, tell my listeners that uh, if you want to listen to our new music, soon we'll be coming, soon more things will be coming out. Um, so now music is my main passion. I'm sitting most of the day on my Ableton and my, you know, producing uh, <clears throat> software and try to create again to create my vision in music. Um, and that really basically stay weird stay weird and find a way to envision your alternative in the most free and um loyal to your values way that you possibly can <laughs> <laughs> mm, 
amazing. I will put a link in the show notes so that people can find your music. Um, and is there a consciousness hack that you want to share something that you do to engage your consciousness? <sighs> so I think what I want to share now, basically in these days, in this, uh, crazy pandemia days, it's just a very basic uh, self-compassion thing, you know, self-compassion practice, which involves just really using your hands as the hands of the best, most beautiful healer. You can imagine if you have a preferred image or if you just want to work with your own sensation in the hand and really take your hand and place them wherever your body needs and really place them with as much intention and loving kindness and care and like really the most loving touch that you can have towards yourself. And for just a few minutes, just radiate inwards into your body and into your heart and into your mind. Just radiate as much compassion as you possibly can, saying to yourself things like, I am here with you. I will never leave you. You're not alone. <laughs> and just repeat this for a couple of times until you really find the sensation, until you can really find, even if it's just for a split of a second, this quality of deep care and deep intimacy with whatever it is that you're going through right now. So that you can be your best friend. I'm going to go do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, lovely. Thank you. So Thank much. you, Galia. Thank you, Leah. Talk to you soon. Bye. Ciao. Ciao. The Psychologist is Consciousness Positive Radio. Find us everywhere podcasts are hosted. For more information, visit us on Facebook or online at thepsychologist.com.